Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with a substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we are bringing you six new episodes. In late 2022, Tim Sobers, who leads our workforce development team, hosted a six-month skill development series for peer recovery support specialists. The training series provided recurring opportunities for peer recovery support specialists from across the country to build foundational skills that are necessary for effective peer recovery support service provision. The series was so well attended and in demand that we also offered it in early 2023. In this series, Tim sits down and has a conversation with each facilitator to have a deeper discussion with them about their presentation and what it means for the field. In this first episode of the series, I spoke with Tim about ethics within peer recovery support. In addition to leading our workforce development team, Tim is a person with lived experience with both mental health and substance use challenges. He got his start as a Wisconsin Certified Peer Specialist in 2016 and has since worked in direct support and supervisory roles. He believes strongly in the value of his lived experiences and learned skills and advocates for greater recognition and compensation of those without higher education across the field of behavioral health. Without further ado, let's get talking. All right, listeners. Well, I'm here with Tim Sobers, who's going to talk to us about ethics for our peer recovery support services skill building series. Tim, welcome. Thanks. I'm excited to be back. Always glad to have you. All right, Tim, where do you want to start? How do we start talking about ethics and peer recovery support (laughs) services? (laughs) Yeah, it's a a big conversation that I think could certainly... Uh, you know, obviously take longer than an hour. That's why the skill development series sessions were three hours, and even that's not enough time. Sure. Um, but uh, when I was designing this this series, uh, ethics is a topic that is asked about so frequently. It's on every single community of practice evaluation that we get. It's on every skill development series evaluation that we get. Is people saying, I want more ethics training, I want more ethics training. And what I wanted for this skill development series and what I hope that we accomplished was offering something that was higher level, that wasn't a one-on-one level training of ethics, because I think that exists in so many places. And for me, ethics is a topic that is really, really interesting. It's like one of my favorite things to speak on, to train on, to facilitate on. And so when I was putting this series together, I really wanted to take on that section myself because I have, <laughs> to the surprise of nobody, I have a lot to say about it. Um, so that's why we like, <laughs> like having you on chance. the team. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this is my chance to be like, here's three hours. I want to present ethics in a way that I feel is really reflective of where we could be moving instead of maybe where we are right now. And so that was kind of the, the thought behind this this session was like, let's offer something that's higher level than 101 and also very forward thinking um, so that we can talk about how do we continue to grow the workforce and and not stagnate. I think that's a great perspective for a number of reasons. And I think one of the biggest things, too, is because peer certification is so varied state by state, how great is it to have something that can speak to the national workforce rather than, like you said, be that hyper-specific content? Well, and it gets really tricky because, uh, you know, we uh, I co-authored the comparative analysis of um, peer certifications that we released, an updated version of earlier this year. And 
in reviewing all that data, it's so clear, you know, how all of the states do things differently. And even within the state, sometimes they do things radically differently for mental health and substance use. And so it was hard to create a space that could meet everyone's needs. But I think also from a perspective, you know, there are a couple of topics where there's a really strong personal attachment, you know, multiple pathways to recovery is one, supporting people in crisis is one. And I think ethics is one where people are really, it can be difficult to separate how do I provide ethical, professional peer support services and hear critiques about that or to hear maybe this doing things in this specific way is actually unethical for peer specialists to hear something like that and and not hear my morals and values are bad. Mm-hmm. And it can be really difficult to disentangle those things. Um, and so I wanted to, you know, spend some time talking about how we're we're in the ethics presentation, we separated things out into three specific spaces of my personal values, uh, personal ethics and boundaries, my professional ethics and boundaries as it relates to being a certified, you know, peer recovery support specialist, and then systemic ethics and values and boundaries about how behavioral healthcare systems work or carceral systems work and the ethics that come along with that and how those things fit together was kind of what we were looking at, again, with that goal of kind of saying, like, there is a specific way that we should be operating from a specific lens that really, really should be looking at peer services through. And if you're not looking at it through that lens, it doesn't mean that you're bad or you have bad morals and values. Maybe it means there's some growth that could occur professionally. But it's also reflective of the systems that we work within because some of the certifications are why some states are providing peer services through a specific ethical lens that is actually out of alignment with true peer values, the history of the movement, and all of those different things. And so it was an interesting space to explore um, and to put forward some ideas of saying, you know, peer specialists really shouldn't be mandatory reporters. To me, that's very unethical. And then have, you know, half the room say, but my state certification says I have to be, or the laws in my state classify me as one anyways. And so then you know, we have to move out of like the ideal of like, well, ideally none of us would be mandatory reporters and into the reality of, well, if if I am, then how do I still provide ethical services? How do I understand that through a nuanced ethical lens? Mm. How did those conversations go? I think it was was an interesting space to navigate, Um, you know, because people have such strong feelings and it can be difficult if you're coming up in a state where things are done a specific way and that's all that you know, then that's what you're going to think, you know, is what you're supposed to be doing. And then if you come into a space like this where we're saying, actually, there's other ways to look at this, there's other ways to do things, to move um, in in ways that are through difficult, different ethical lens. Um, sometimes it causes people to think like, well, is my state doing things bad or have I been causing harm? And we really didn't want people to walk away thinking that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think all of the states ended up with the certifications the way they did, largely due to their independent histories. Uh, and so, you know, they're they're where they're at for a reason. And so I'm, I'm always hesitant to say that this is incorrect or it's not, you know, the way it should be done because it's often tied directly to the history of the peer movement in that specific state. Um, and there's still some undergirding kind of values of like informed consent, voice choice and control, empowerment, and particularly looking at the history of the movements, which are really coming from a place of systemic oppression, systemic neglect, and, you know, large-scale harm from the behavioral healthcare system that we were really, I was really trying to get us to look at, well, now we've come full circle where we're working within these systems that we originally created, you know, to push back on, to transform, and in some cases to completely dismantle. So now that we're back in these systems, potentially contributing to the same problems that caused the workforce to be created in the first place, what does that mean for us as a workforce, workforce from an ethical standpoint? 
Um, and so we spent some time grappling with that question in the space as well. Yeah, big, definitely big questions to be, well, and not just simply answered, right? That's part of what makes this an ongoing conversation and moving along with history and cultural shifts. And yeah, how do you do that in a three-hour session or a one-hour podcast episode? <laughs> right. Yeah. And while there is no concrete answer, and I, that is, I think that there's, you know, there, it's not going to be black and white of like, this is what we should always do. This is what we should not do. There are guideposts, right? We sometimes mm -hmm. see peer support become so nebulous and vague that people think it means that we're just doing, kind of doing anything. It's a catch-all for like, well, I'm just kind of with this person. But there is a specific framework. There are a specific set of values. There is a history. There's a movement. And all of those things need to guide how we're making decisions. So there may not be necessarily a always do this and always do that, but there is you know, history and knowledge that we can lean back on to say, well, how can these things guide us as we're creating or updating these certifications or codes of ethics? Or uh, even to me, a really big ethical question is, do peer specialists need to be everywhere that they are right now? Um, you know, we see peer work expanding across the country in so many different systems, so many different spaces. And I rarely hear people say, actually, you need a community health worker here. Actually, you need a systems navigator here. You don't need a peer specialist here. You need somebody else because that's outside of our scope. And for me, there needs to be some more ethical, you know, some grappling with the ethical implications of just saying like, yeah, we'll go into any system. Yes, you're offering us the chance to be in here. So we're just going to say yes. And it often leads to significant compromises in the way that we provide services and what peer support is supposed to look like. Um, and so I, I would love to see more people grappling with the question of, maybe we should say no, actually, to being in this space or to this partnership or to this funding because it's pushing us so far outside of the scope of what peer work is supposed to be that it's actually causing more problems than it is solving. Wow, I hadn't even considered that. And I mean, even one of the COE's focus areas is peer integration. And a, a big driver of that is, yeah, we want to see more peers in more places. And you're absolutely right that that could if not done thoughtfully and intentionally, could do some harm to the fidelity of the peer services themselves. And maybe less pulling back on that focus and focusing more on expanding the existing services. Or, And I mean, you can always focus also on referral communications or the way organizations communicate with one another. Well, and pushing for that larger scale systemic transformation, mm -hmm. you know, instead of saying, okay, we want to be in this system, we want to work with whatever it might be. I'm very hesitant to name any systems because I sure. think people are going to come back and be like, but it works really well here. <laughs> and it's very like, but not all, you know, yeah. and it does, this doesn't apply to you. It doesn't apply to you. And, you know, if, if we want to be in some of these systems, we can't be the ones who are always compromising. It has to be the system changing as mm -hmm. well. Saying, if you want me in this jail, prison, school, I don't know, community behavioral health center, wherever it might be, then you need to change as well. It can't just be that we're going to assimilate and change how we're providing services to fit your model. Because if you're really saying we want peer services here, then you need to be changing your policies and procedures. You need to be changing your outcome measurements. You need to be changing your funding streams. You know, if we're saying, and I am saying this, that peer specialists should not be mandatory reporters, and you're in a state where you're not, like I am in Wisconsin, we're not, but if I have to go work in this one specific system or institution that's saying you have to report anytime somebody's having thoughts of suicide or uh, engaging in self-injurious behavior, then I'm going to say no, 
because that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. That's outside of my scope of practice. It would be unethical for me to do those things. So if you as a system actually want me to be here, you need to change that policy and not expect me to change and compromise on my values, maintaining fidelity to the model. And ultimately within that too, I think it's you know, taking things to more macro scale, how many other professions with an evidence-based practice that you're providing are being asked to do that, are being asked to compromise on their values, their mode and scope of practice, their evidence base in order to be in these systems. I'm sure that everyone is to some degree, but I don't see it to the same degree as, as to what we are asked to compromise in order to be in these systems. And to me, that level of compromise does sometimes reach into unethical circumstances and unethical compromises that result in the dilution of peer services. Well thought out and well said. I was just thinking, like, man, this isn't necessarily unique to peers. How often do we see the challenge of folks in rural spaces where they're the sole provider of whatever it is having to do more and more above their their licensure or their cert- certification or whatever their skill set is simply for the lack of support structurally? Right. And then when do you say... No, like this is Mm -hmm. not something that I can do. You're asking too much of me. I think especially for peer recovery support specialists, we can feel like I have to be doing it all. You know, I want to, there's, there's like a really uh, sometimes to a a more evident degree than in other professions, obviously a deeply personal connection to the work and a feeling that I want to help everyone. I want to save everyone. I want to do everything. And that also leads us into some unethical circumstances and unethical spaces of like, you're doing too much. Like, You've made yourself too available. Some of these boundaries are not strong enough. And and I think that has, you know, that comes with its own set of, of issues that need to be overcome. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Do you want to uh, jump back a little bit and talk through kind of how you broke for the skill development series, the webinars, how you broke it up into the three sections of personal, professional, and systemic Yeah. So it was really important to me to take that approach because we often start with like, well, what does the code of ethics in your state say? Or what is, you know, a national code of ethics that we can look at and how does it apply to these scenarios without first starting at like, but what do I as an individual actually believe and value and how am I navigating the world? Because my personal values and morals influence everything. They influence the way that I'm showing up, whether I'm at work and bound by this code of ethics or not, uh, or or I'm just out in the world doing my day-to-day life. And so I really wanted people to reflect on like, well, before we talk about this code of ethics, let's talk about the lens through which you're going to be interpreting it as an individual, because your morals and values are the lens through which you're going to look at this state-approved code of ethics, how you're going to interpret it, how you're going to make meaning of it, and how you're going to apply it ultimately in practice. And so um, I used an example, I used my own morals and values and boundaries as the example to showcase like, this is where I am. This is not me saying you have to be here, right. um, but making it clear, like, because I have these morals and values and beliefs and boundaries, I look at this code of ethics and interpret things in this specific way, but you might have, you know, morals and values that are very different than me. And so you're going to look at this code of ethics maybe very differently. Um, and so we really wanted to kind of foundationally ground ourselves there and do some exploration because it also impacts like, how are you making meaning of the core peer support values, like multiple pathways to recovery? You know, are you understanding that as multiple pathways to truly recovery, meaningful living, however that looks to an individual, or are you understanding that as multiple pathways to abstinence-based recovery 
or uh, clinical understandings of recovery involving treatment and medication. Um, and then if you're not doing that, then you're not in recovery. You know, if you're not sober, then you're not in recovery because those are very different. And an understanding of true multiple pathways to recovery to meaningful living creates a lot more space to interpret codified codes of ethics more broadly and with a little bit more creativity and grace and compassion than if you're looking at just the lens of everybody has to be sober. Um, and so we really wanted to start there so we could get a baseline, but then move into the professional codes of ethics. Um, and I was able to use some of the data from the comparative analysis to show like, you know, this many states or this percentage of codes of ethics have this one and this percentage have that one. So we could really look at like, what are we seeing in a national landscape and what are a lot of these things saying? And then picking apart some of these, like really naming, and this is something I've said uh, on many occasions in many spaces that our co codes of ethics, the peer specialist codes of ethics are heavily co-opted. Almost all of them are um, because of who created them, right? They were created by state systems, often in collaboration with peers. I don't want to act like there was no peer involvement at all, but often when systems get involved, um, things get changed. And so that's why we see a lot of these like, you know, mandatory reporting pieces or, uh, you know, supporting people in uh, becoming compliant with uh, treatment plans. Or a lot of codes of ethics have things that will say, like, you're supposed to do a treatment plan or a recovery plan or a safety plan or a wellness plan, all of which are out of scope for peer specialists. Um, and those things come from clinical co-optation. And so we would spend some time looking at the codes of ethics and the data behind them to show, like, these things exist, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually reflective of what the workforce is supposed to be doing or the true, true ethos that's undergirding, you know, peer work. And so how can we expand how we're understanding these things? Uh, you know, frequently people will say things like, I shouldn't accept a gift of any, any a gift period. I shouldn't be accepting gifts of any kind, or it will often say like a gift of significant value. And so we spend some time talking about like, well, who gets to define what significant value means? You know, it could be cultural value. It could be monetary value. And if you're looking at, you know, monetary value, if you're receiving a card from a homeless person who spent their last $3 to get you a card, does that have greater value than somebody who spent $3 to get you a card who has housing and stable income and is doing well and, and for them that $3 is nothing. So how are you making that determination? We have all of these codes of ethics in place, but their meanings are so gray and varied. And so we would spend some time looking at like common, you know, uh, uh, or uh, professional codes of ethics that we see in practice and how they look up. And then what could we do in response? How could we put these through an actually peer lens and really approach things from how we want to do things and not from how existing systems and, and clinical understandings of ethics approach things? Um, and, and kind of to highlight one more example that I, I like to use is this idea of, um, you know, after services end, you shouldn't see or speak to the person you were providing services to for six months, one year, two years, it varies depending on where you work. But a lot of code of ethics will say something like that. And so as peer specialists, we have the chance to push back and say like, well, why? That's very paternalistic. That's very patronizing of existing systems and organizations to have that sort of restriction in place. So could we actually reframe this of, you know, to the lens of we're peer specialists, so we believe in mutuality, empowerment, voice choice, and control, you know, mutually agreed upon boundaries. So instead of saying, I can't see you for two years, how about we say, we're going to have a conversation together about what this looks like, if we both consent to still even staying in touch, right? We don't, there's no obligation to. Right. If we as consenting adults make the decision that we still want to be friends outside of this, 
then we can explore what that looks like together. We can have a conversation about boundaries. We can have a conversation about, you know, what this relationship is going to look like, um, making it clear that I'm not your peer specialist anymore. We're friends. So this is going to look different. Um, but really trusting that the people we're providing services to are competent and have the ability to engage in that sort of a nuanced dialogue. And so pushing back on these existing codes of ethics um, that are rooted, you know, to some degree in clinical understandings of wellness, health, and providing behavioral health care services to be able to say, no, actually, peer specialists can do it differently. And so we'd spend some time there, and then we'd move into systemic values um, uh, of, of kind of what we're seeing larger scale systems require, including like, um, you know, what's considered successful outcome measurements, uh, what it means to contribute as part of a treatment team. Um, what does it mean to receive services to begin with? Uh, you know, what do all these these ethical pieces look like in play um, when you're working in a system that's designed to reduce quote unquote systems or promote abstinence or require you to engage with law enforcement when that's not really something that we should be doing? Um, and how do all these pieces fit together? And so we're kind of breaking it down to see how they build upon each other um, so that we could get a fuller picture of how the decisions that we make are influenced by our own personal understandings of ethics and values what our profession says they are, and then the system that we're working within. It's hard to follow up with you sometimes because you just I'm like, oh, that was perfectly summarized. Um, do you feel like in in the rooms when you were having these discussions, do you, do you feel like they were the peers were receptive? How did they receive these thoughts and ideas? Yeah, I think there was a lot of interest. I think people are really looking for, and that was, I think, uh, so sorry to backtrack. I think that actually yeah. looking at all six of these, mm. people were really, really interested in what we were doing, what we were saying, because I specifically asked five other facilitators who I knew would do this, something similar. They're going to present you know, information that maybe people haven't been exposed to before or look at things through a very different lens. Um, to make meaning of things in new ways. I really wanted the series to be, you know, four or 500 level class, um, all six of them. And I think all six of them were, but what I heard across all of them and in this ethics space as well, was that people were kind of already there to an extent. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a group of folks, at least in every single one who would say, I was thinking this exact same thing, but I didn't know that other people were thinking it or doing it, or I didn't know how to put it into practice or uh, I disagreed with this piece of my state's code of ethics, and I thought that that meant that I wasn't doing my job right. But being in this space, I understand that I'm actually in alignment with, you know, the grassroots movement, the values, the history. Uh, and so it was exciting to see a lot of people saying like, oh, I I was kind of moving in this direction, but I didn't have the words for it. Or I'm in agreement with you, and and now I feel supported by a community. Something I saw across all six, though, that I think is really interesting and in this this ethics space as well, was um, sometimes a struggle to take things from theory to practice of, you know, okay, we're talking about this in this space together and all these interesting, you know, macro level nebulous concepts like historics and history and values and, and what these things mean and how could they be executed. And then we'd get to the point where we'd say, okay, well, what would you actually say? You know, the, one of the, there were two example scenarios that I used in the ethics space. One was about supporting somebody who was using intravenous drugs um, and so this person was saying, I want to continue to use drugs. I don't want to stop. I want you to help me get a job and I want to use drugs in a more safe manner. Um, and so this, that was the scenario. So the question was, how would you support this person? Um, you've got the rest of the treatment team saying, no, they need to be sober. They need to stop using drugs before they can do anything else. You've got the actual person saying, no, I'm going to keep using drugs. I want you to help me do it more safely and to get a job. What do you do? And then people would say, well, I, I would support them. I value, you know, self-determination, multiple pathways. And you kind of push a little bit, push a little bit. 
and get to that, well, what would you say to the treatment team? Mm-hmm. What would what concrete actions would you take? And there was a little bit of a struggle there. And that's kind of why I wanted this to be a skill development series so that we could talk through like, here's an example of what you could say. Here's what this could look like actually in practice it, when you run into this situation. Um, and it was really interesting to see people rise to the occasion and, and be able to then come back and say like, okay, this is exactly what I would say in this scenario, or this is what I would do to engage with the treatment team and and support the person who's receiving services and the decision that they're making. But it was also an interesting experience because then we would have sometimes people come back and say, I wouldn't be able to support that person. And that's why we started with like the personal mores and values, right? Of I wouldn't be able to support somebody who's continuing to use substances uh, because that's just not something that I agree with that's not my, how i understand recovery and so then we would get to explore like well is that ethical you know then then could you refer them to another organization that could support them you know where's where does your ethical duty lie then if you can't support them is it better to keep them in this space with you guys who are saying no you have to be sober or is it more ethical to refer them out to a different organization that can support them and if you're referring them out then linking back to those kind of systemic ethics and boundaries does that count as a successful outcome or are you guys interpreting that as a failure because they chose not to receive services with you and so kind of tying all these pieces back together but it was interesting to explore some of these conversations of like okay cool we know where we're fitting we're looking at some hypothetical ethics now like what are you going to actually do when this comes up for you? Yeah, yeah. What would you What would you say to peers who are kind of in that place where they're right on the precipice of taking action, right? They're having all these thoughts. They're kind of feeling something doesn't feel right. Maybe I haven't identified it. Maybe I've started to. But where do where do you start taking those steps to get from thought to action? Yeah, I think it's um. You know, my first response, of course, in my mind is like, just do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm a, a little bit more, I'm somebody who will always leap before he looks. So I, I tend to just be like, well, I'm just going to go for it. And what happens <laughs> is going to happen. <laughs> sometimes that works out and sometimes it does not. Okay, um, Tim, let so. me advocate for maybe my less risk averse friends here. <laughs> Yes. So I think that there's a lot of options, right? There are existing organizations that are doing things in a very forward-thinking manner um, or in a way that is really elevating peer values. We saw some of them as um, as some of the facilitators, right? We saw like Wildflower Alliance, um, Sarah David, our executive director, was one of our facilitators. Solstice House, Peer Run Respite, uh, and Sorecase Management, their uh, director of peer services, Zay Okoronto, was also one of our uh, facilitators. Uh, we had the, the president of NAPS present. Um, but I think looking to some of these organizations or spaces that are doing things in the way that you want to be doing things can help to see an example of what these services could look like. Uh, it can help to see like how are these values being practiced. And a lot of these organizations will have sort of writings. I don't know a better word for it than that of kind of like, this is what our value set is. This is how we're putting it into practice. You might see articles um, and being able to look at some of those and understand like, okay, well, what does this actually look like when I'm doing it? Or could I build up some resources that I can show to my supervisor if I want to make a change at work? If I'm saying like, hey, you guys are asking me to do things that are unethical or outside of my scope. It's always beneficial to be able to point to organizations that can back you up and say it's not just me saying that or I'm, I'm not just feeling this way because a lot of times that just isn't enough. But it can be beneficial to say, and there's a writing over here that I found from this organization or, and this organization is backing me up here and saying like, this is really what peer support could look like if we were doing it um, true to values. There's so many examples. 
that's something I wanted people to see in this skill development series too, is there's, there's this kind of fear that I hear in the workforce. And I think it's in any workforce that is trying to do something new is, is I want to do this thing, but I don't know if it's going to work. Or I'm really nervous to take the first step. Uh, and I really wanted to show people that there are plenty of examples of this succeeding of what you're trying to do working out really well, sometimes even better than existing services. Um, and to have people be connected to the folks that could show them that or who are doing it already so that we could stop being in this space of like, well, I don't know if that's going to be possible or, you know, my organization's policies and procedures, they'd have to be done this way. Or, you know, we get a lot of that. Well, this is the way it's always been done. And so we're nervous to make a change. And I wanted to have facilitators uh, who could showcase that those answers aren't solid enough reasons not to change the way we're providing services and not to back peer specialists up properly because they're doing it in the way that you're saying is impossible to be done and they're succeeding. Right. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's easy, something easy for how intentional, how unintentional, I don't know. I won't hazard a guess, but I think that folks forget in any employment situation is that policies and procedures are living, breathing documents. Like they are updated regularly. They go through an approval process. Again, it looks different in different places, but that there, there is room for things to change. There's always room. Well, and I would really encourage people to, like, if you're looking to implement a more ethical version of peer support services, or you're being asked to do things that are outside of your code of ethics or scope of practice, and you have people saying, well, this is the way it's always been done, or this is what the policies say, or this is what the funder is requiring, follow that paper trail. Follow it all the way back up to that funder, because oftentimes what you'll find is that the funder has not required that but your organization is choosing to interpret it that way. Or they're saying, well, this is the policy. And the second you say, okay, can you please give me the written policy? There is no written policy. So really, you know, pushing just a little bit will often get you where you want to go. And we'll kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, poke holes in some of these ideas that like these things have to be done a specific way. And it creates the opportunity to say, okay, well, this policy isn't written down. So it's not formalized. So I'm not actually breaking any rules. So can we craft a really effective policy together. And it gives you, you know, then the opportunity to say, I really want to work with you, supervisor or other team members, to put together a policy that will support all of us. Um, and then you can kind of transform things from sometimes what can feel adversarial because you're pushing organizations in new ways into a more collaborative space of like, let's really, you know, we all want to provide ethical services. I trust that organizations want that. And everybody working within systems really wants to be providing ethical services. I have no question about that. And so to create the opportunity to say, let's write an ethical policy together can be really exciting. Yeah, I love that perspective because it doesn't. Because, yeah, it can also it can it can very quickly turn into a me versus them situation just with. Yeah. yeah, just in the blink of an eye, even even if you approach it with us with a simple series of questions yeah and that's something that i found in in training ethics for years and years is is that i always work so hard to say i'm presenting peer values i'm presenting peer ethics and i'm talking about how we provide services i am not here in this space to say and that means that clinical staff is doing it incorrectly or that they're doing it wrong or that they don't share these values but people often hear that um, that you know we're saying well we value mutuality voice choice control empowerment um, you know uh, informed consent and you have everyone else saying well so do we and then I'll talk about how we're practicing it and they're saying oh that's not how we do it 
And then you're kind of saying, okay, well, you're, you're a separate profession from us with your own code of ethics, your own scope of practice. I am not a clinician. I am not an expert in clinical ethics or work. So if you're saying that's how you guys put those values into practice, I'm not here to tell you that that's wrong. I am here to tell you that that's not how we're going to do it, that we're going to do it in a different way that is reflective of our history, values, and understandings of things. And if you choose to interpret that as an attack on your profession, that is something that you need to grapple with because that's not what we're doing or saying here. Um, but it can be really tricky to kind of ride that line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just goes back to the our <laughs> so much of human nature wanting to just create a binary of good and bad. And it's like, no, we're, it's just different and we can make it better. And just because baseline is not where we're our goal is doesn't make it bad it's just there's room to make right. it better and that was admin, it was an interesting conversation too within the ethics training because we would talk about going back to that early example of this person wants to continue using drugs there were some folks who felt very scared and i was really appreciative of their vulnerability to say like i wouldn't be able to support this person And I was really nervous to speak up about that in this space. And so we got to have sort of that conversation of like, okay, that's fine. That doesn't mean that you're a bad, you know, peer recovery support specialist. It it led us into a conversation of like, who is working where, you know, if you're working in a space where the expectation is to be in our program, you have to engage in abstinence. And I'm a peer recovery support specialist with, uh, you know, a background in abstinence-based recovery. And I really value that and believe in that that could be a perfect fit for you to be providing peer support services as long as everything's being communicated clearly and you're obtaining, you know, informed consent of, yes, I want to receive abstinence-based services. Whereas you might be working uh, in a harm reduction environment where the goal is not sobriety or abstinence, but instead just supporting somebody and doing whatever they'd like to do, whether or not that means continued substance use. And maybe then that's not the best fit for you. So it gets into, again, that nuance of like, you're not worse or better or bad or good for believing or not believing certain things or being able to provide certain services. It just means we need to go back to that question of, do I need to be here then? Do I need to be in this specific spot? Or do I maybe need to be in a different spot that is better suited for what I'm bringing to the table? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I think it's one of those things that, again, could is universal for anyone working in any sort of space. You want your work environment, you want your teammates to, I mean, it doesn't have to be ubiquitous kind of presentation, but just that you want, you want your skill sets and your practice to match where you're working. Otherwise, you're just going to be in, unhappy. Yeah, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, linking back to the, the ethics, there needs to be some understanding of, of, of ethics within this organization. Like, do you understand that our code of ethics is going to look different than the clinicians? And can we respect that? Can there be mutual respect and exchange of understanding there? But I agree yeah, that the composition of the workplace is really important to the provision of ethical services. Uh-huh. Not jumping ethics topics, but jumping from this current topic. Um, Was there anyone, was there, I I don't want to call people out. Was there any pushback into what you presented or were you faced with any conversations that within the presentation space where you're like, oh, this is a new challenge or this is, this is kind of how I approached it and the conclusions we came to. Yeah. I think it's always interesting because anytime that, you know, anytime you present anything, I think if you're 
for me, this is just like me as an individual, not even as a COE staff person. I do a lot of public speaking. And I'm like, if I'm doing this public speaking and nobody is challenging what I have to say, I have not done a good job. Like I really invite somebody being like, actually, I think that you're wrong and I would do it this way. Or I think that this is what, you know, we should really be valuing. Because for me, that means that I've created a space or we have as a group created a space where people feel comfortable enough to speak up and be like, actually, this doesn't work for my community or for whatever reason. And so there wasn't there wasn't a ton of it, um, but there definitely was um, some people saying like, you know, I don't agree. I think everybody has to be sober. Sobriety is a piece of recovery. You know, something that um, was really interesting that I got in one piece of feedback was that it was... Um, somebody actually said it was uh, presenting dangerous information to suggest that you could still be using substances and provide effective peer support services, mm-hmm. uh, that that was actually an unethical thing to present. And that was very interesting to me because what I see within within feedback like that is that I don't take it as you know antagonism or or even really valid critique. But I think it's really interesting to hear that because what I see is like, all you've done now is tell on yourself. <laughs> that you don't have a good understanding of these values, that you actually maybe are not in the right profession. Um, and so I think it's it's interesting because sometimes people will say stuff like that and think that they're offering a really interesting point when actually I'm like, okay, maybe there's a lot more room for growth here. And so I'm not going to look at this as like, we're having a disagreement as much as like, how can I support you in kind of expanding your understanding and not in a patronizing way? Cause that can get very patronizing really very quickly of like, if you don't think like me, then you just don't know enough. I hate that. Yeah. Um, so like, how can we, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, how can I understand where you're coming from and how can I maybe showcase or articulate what I'm trying to present a little bit more effectively so that you can understand it. Um, and so there was a little bit of pushback, like, like in that space, um, but I think, uh, where we got, where I got the kind of the most, uh, engaging dialogue, I guess is probably what I'll say, or our most interesting responses was the last scenario. Um, and I chose it very intentionally and, uh, it was, um, a scenario in which the person that you're providing services to, um, wants to go to a protest of some kind. It doesn't, didn't say what kind, um, and they ask you to go with them. Um, and it specifically says in the scenario, you know, your organization doesn't have policies around this. There's nothing written saying you can't go or that you can go. Um, this person really wants you to go. Um, so do you go with them or not? And, uh, and then, you know, there's a follow-up question of, um, you know, now switch it to protesting, uh, against something that you agree with or protesting in support of something that you disagree with. Would you still go? Um, and so we're exploring like, you know, pushing people outside of all of our work is focused on substance use. Because when I was doing direct service, that was like the thing we talked about the least was how much substances they were using. We were talking about their real life. Um, And so we had a lot of different answers. People saying like, you know, this scenario is not even relevant here because I'm supposed to be providing substance use focused services running all the way up to, of course I would go, we'd be out front. I'd have to, you know, I'd have to sign and I'd be chanting. Um, and so it was really interesting to see like where people fell on how quote unquote appropriate or ethical it might be to accompany a person you're providing services to, to a community-based event with an agenda or an opinion. Um, and so that was, I think where we got some of the the biggest pushback and there wasn't a correct answer. You know, I wasn't there to be like, you should always go or you should never go. Uh, but it was interesting to see how they, how the the attendants the participants engaged with each other because there were some folks who were like of course i would go i would want to show solidarity and there were others saying like no because you know i could be caught on camera and people might think that i actually believe this when i'm actually just going to support somebody else you know and, and so there was a lot of valid opinions on on you know all different sides um but i think that was where we got some of the, the biggest pushback 
and I guess pushback isn't even the right word. Some of the best dialogue, but yeah. um, for me, I think, and I get this in all of my presentations that I do is that people will say like, Oh, you came into this presentation with an agenda. I was looking for just neutral information and you have an agenda. And I'm like, of course I have an agenda. If you're going, I've never been to a presentation that didn't have an agenda. Like if you don't have an agenda, you don't have a point of view. So of course this is, you know, going to be spun through my point of view through, which is, you know, built upon years of connection with, with folks from across the country and what we think is best, but it's certainly not the be all end all. And I hope nobody walked away thinking like, if you're doing things outside of the way that Tim thinks you should be doing them, then you're not doing it right. Cause that's certainly not correct. But I, that one always sticks out cause I get it every presentation I do. And it always makes me laugh is that they're like, he had too much of an agenda. <laughs> yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yes, you asked me to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's funny too. Cause half the time it's like, they have objectives they want you to speak to. It's like, yeah, you had an agenda too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm like, okay. I don't, I don't know what the problem is. So that one's always very, it always makes me laugh every time I see it. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what you wanted. Yeah. Do you feel like if you had to put an assessment on like the state of providing ethical peer services, and maybe you want to speak to your personal experience or a state you're familiar with or, you know, the entire country, where do you think we're at as a field? I think it's interesting. And I, I know that people don't like it when I say this. Um, but what I see is almost a level of um, like us co-opting ourselves. It doesn't mm-hmm. to me really even feel like systems are actively trying to co-opt us anymore as much as it feels like as a workforce, we are co-opting each other and co-opting ourselves and the movement and often without the system asking us to compromise to be in systems volunteering to compromise to be in different systems mm-hmm. um and so from i've seen a lot of that um really across the country um but then i've also seen kind of on the opposite end a lot of folks saying like i don't want to work in systems based peer support anymore i hear this very very frequently it's an interesting piece that came up with the certification research was so many people saying, well, I got the certification uh, so that I could bill Medicaid and work within these existing systems. Um, And that's not the only reason certifications exist. I want to be very clear. They exist for a variety of reasons, but that was what we heard from folks um, was that I got it so I could bill Medicaid and I don't want to work in a Medicaid billable system anymore. I want to provide, you know, grassroots peer support or community-based peer support or community-specific peer support or peer support that doesn't require a certification in order to meet these communities' needs. And I see a lot more peer support being done through the lens of our history and our ethics and values in those spaces, because there's a lot more space to be flexible and to implement things in different ways, rather than in existing systems that might build Medicaid because it's so structured, it's so rigid, things have to be done in a specific way. The notes have to be written a specific way. The treatment plan has to be written in a, you know, using certain language. There isn't enough, there isn't really any room for flexibility there. And so there is a much higher barrier to implementing truly ethical peer services there because you're in a system with very, very little room for flexibility. Whereas if you're working at like an RCO or, um, you know, an organization that is entirely run through donations or community support or is entirely voluntary, you've got a lot more flexibility to say like, okay, well, we're not going to do that. Um, 
But ultimately what I see too is a lot more folks uh, being willing to stand in their power. Uh, this is just, you know, I'm going to shamelessly plug the community, uh, the Center of Excellence and the Communities of Practice. But later this year, we're going to have a community of practice that is called uh, Who Validates Us? Um, and so kind of looking at this idea of what if as a workforce we stopped looking for or we didn't stop, we expanded uh, our search for validation as a profession from just existing systems to ourselves. What if we validated each other and said, actually, no, I have the, the ability, the strength, the knowledge, the expertise to provide peer support services very well. And we stood in our power and said, this is what ethical peer support services look like. And this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to stand up to the funders and say, no, we're going to do it this way. We're going to change our outcome measurements. And I see more and more people doing that across the country. Um, I really like to highlight, again, uh, Solstice House Peer Run Respite, which is state funded, doing a really excellent job of saying, actually, this is what peer support looks like. And so this is what we're going to do and achieving incredible success in doing that. Um, and I see that primarily being led by uh, people of color, queer folks, queer people of color, kind of being really willing to say, actually, no, I have the power to be able to do this really, really well. And so I'm going to. Um, and I would love to see more and more of that kind of expanding. I'd love to see more folks willing to do that, uh, willing to take that risk, because it does require a lot of risk. Ultimately, I think the provision of truly ethical peer services is a huge risk uh, because it's so radically different to what existing services look like. And so... I think there's a lot of fear in being willing to do that, to stand in your power and say, actually, no, peer support looks like this and, and we're not going to compromise on it um, because you might lose your funding. Um, but it gets back to that question of earlier, is it, you know, are we meant to be here then? You know, it's better to have funding and provide services that we're calling peer, but that are not peer services or to not be in this space at all. And I don't, I don't necessarily know what the right answer is. Me neither. <laughs> I like the question though. <laughs> Well, and it's some of that language too. So this is kind of taking us into a more macro space. But even that word peer, we see people saying we're providing peer support services, we're providing peer services, we have peers on staff, when they might just mean I have lived experience. I'm a person who has, you know, direct lived experience, but I'm not certified or I'm not actually a peer, or they're saying they're providing peer support services. But the number of positions that I see that are case manager with lived experience or systems navigator with lived experience or you know, uh, people in coaching positions, uh, all of these other sorts of jobs that are claiming to be providing peer support services, but are not, um, I think is also contributing to, you know, the unethical provision of peer support services. And, and going back to that question of like, if you just want case management, then just get a case manager. Don't get like a peer case manager. Like, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> Don't claim you're providing peer support services if you're actually providing resource and systems navigation and your role is a systems navigator just be a systems navigator. There's a lot of what I see across the country is this idea that like peer support still sort of is this like magic bullet. Peer support's going to fix systems. Peer support's a, a radical way of providing services, and it is. But it's not better than providing clinical services. If people want clinical services, they should have them. It's not better than a community health worker. If somebody wants a community health worker, they should have one. And so what I would love to see is these organizations <laughs> saying, we actually maybe just need something else. Like we don't, mm. putting peer specialists everywhere, but diluting it to the point where it's no longer peer services is unethical to me and is not actually helping the growth and expansion of peer services. It's actually diluting it. And so I would rather us just see in a larger scale conversation of like, we do have a role to play in some spaces and in some ways that are very, very removed from systems, in my opinion, is where we're going to see truly ethical and very effective peer support. And if you want us in these other spaces, then some changes need to be made. But that third option of 
we don't need to be here also needs to be on the table too. Of you, you're asking for services that are not peer support. So you need somebody else who can provide those services. And again, that doesn't mean the services being asked for are bad. They're just not peer support. And people hear that. I say that all the time. This is not peer support, but it doesn't mean it's bad. And they still hear he's saying those are bad services. And that's not what I'm saying. So I want to be like super clear. Just because it's not peer support doesn't mean it's not bad. But it is unethical to claim you're providing peer support and provide other services instead. Right. It's it's just honesty and clarity, right? Just to say, this is what we need. And we don't have to call it anything other than exactly what it is. Exactly. Yeah. Is there anything is there anything else you'd want to say while we're in this space and we have this platform? Is there anything you'd want to say to organizations out there who do have peers and are looking to be more ethical in their provision of services? Yeah, uh, I I, <laughs> I think something that's really that I have been talking about for years is is that if you're going to hire peer recovery support specialists, you need to have an understanding of the history of the movement of all of the values because, uh, and this is going to be, as always with me, it's going to be a kind of a long-winded answer, but um, peer support is a revolutionary service. It is a radical way of providing services that we really haven't seen in systems before. Um, the way that we're providing services, what we're talking about, it is revolutionary. And I mean revolutionary in the sense of systems transformation, systems dismantling, you know, pulling it all apart, build something new, but also revolutionary in the sense of um, fitting into systems in new spaces, transforming the way that others are providing services, really bringing something new to the table. It is not an, a well-established profession. It's still very, very new. Um, and so it is revolutionary. And I think as a workforce, we need to understand that. And again, stand in our power of I'm doing something revolutionary here by working at this organization, by providing these services. I am doing something that is radically different than everybody else. And so there's that piece. But as employers, you need to understand that, that you're hiring staff who are revolutionary, who are radical, who come from a history of grassroots movements, of you know, engagement with uh, disability justice, consumer survivor expatient, uh, you know, people who experience psychiatric incarceration, uh, civil rights movements. And therefore, you need to be ready for revolution within your organization as well to radically transform your policies, to be prepared to understand that hiring a, a peer recovery support specialist is consenting to participate in systemic revolution. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to run into consistent problems uh, with the staff that you've hired and the way that services are provided. And ultimately, um, what I would like to see more from organizations is is a balancing, a rebalancing of the focus, right? There's this kind of systems-wide idea right now that, oh, we have folks with lived experience, so we need to be providing extra mental health days, or what do I do if they're having a return to use, or you know they don't have the, the, the professional skills, quote-unquote, needed to provide effective services, when what you really need to be doing is looking at do our policies and procedures support people with mental health or substance use challenges, regardless of whether they're peer staff or not? Um, do I have you know uh, program-specific policies in place that would require peer recovery support specialists to act outside of their scope of practice or their code of ethics? And how are those things going to contribute to not being able to retain staff or to having staff turnover or staff, staff dissatisfaction? And doing all of those things before you've hired somebody, not putting it on the peer recovery support specialist that you hire to do those things for you um, is critically important. So I wish there was more of an ownership and a willingness to 
do some organizational and programmatic reflection and change before peer recovery support specialists were hired, not devoid of them, right? They're supposed to be at the table to like change these things. Um, instead of this idea that, you know, we need to treat these people like they're patients still. Um, and I think that that's when we see a lot of violations of ethics taking place is when the organizations haven't done those things and haven't taken the time to reflect and change and grow and, you know, become part of a revolutionary service provision. That's when we see problems occurring. Mm. Well said. Anything you'd want to say to the peer workforce? I think, no, I mean, I would say <laughs> like keep fighting the good fight. I think that so much of this can feel so siloing. It can feel like I'm the only one, you know, I'm you know, often the only peer recovery support specialist at the organization. I'm one of one. I don't know, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. It can feel very challenging to do all of these things on, on your own. So keep fighting the good fight. Keep showing up in the spaces like the ones that we're hosting, you know, engage with the organizations across your city, county, state, country, um, get connected to as much as you can. And I would say, you know, really also make sure that you know your history. Um, and again, to kind of go off on a little tangent, like so many of the certification trainings don't include uh, enough information about the true grassroots history of the peer movement. And so we get people coming into the workforce. And I was one of them when I got certified, I did not learn about, you know, the proper history of the peer movement. And so I thought that all that peer support was, was the existing state certification and providing services in existing systems. And then over time, I, I came into knowledge and grew and learned. Um, and so I would really encourage people to do that learning and growing and, and reading and engaging with the history of the movement. Um, so that you can better understand what we're supposed to be doing and really push back on this idea of like, we're just meant to assimilate into systems, but make sure that you know what you're a part of. You're part of a movement um, that's larger than a profession and make sure that you've taken the time to understand what that means. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org, or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.